You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Cory Dockrow is the author of Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom so many years ago. He and I talked about that in the EFF offices in San Francisco, California. Here we are some 20 years later talking about his latest book, The Lost Cause. Thank you for joining me, Corey. Not at all. One of the things about this book that struck me is just how well done the central character, Brooks Palazzo, is because he, he always has a realistic reaction to everything in the book. It's just a, a fabulous character to read. And he is, a, in many ways, it's a revolutionary character. It's the opposite of the hero in the hero's journey. <laughs> so talk about creating this character. Well... You know, in some ways, this is my, like, Kim Stanley Robinson uh, fanfic. Um, the, there's a book Stan wrote called um, Pacific Edge that is consistently the book that I that cheers me up when I'm down. I, I read it whenever things seem hopeless. I go and read that book. And, and I like to think that I was channeling someone like a Kim Stanley Robinson protagonist, but also a bit maybe like Stan, who is himself quite a lot like that. Um, and uh, he is, um, so the thing that I've always admired about Stan is he's such a happy-go-lucky guy, even as he is freaking out, angry, worried, you know, clear-eyed, looking at the world and, and going like, this is this is like legitimately terrible and we're all in terrible danger. And yet he strikes me as the kind of guy who, like, if you were hiking in the Sierras with him and there was a landslide and you were all trapped in the rubble and, and waiting for rescue, he'd be the one who'd, like, keep everyone from freaking out. Well, you know, that was one of the things about this book is upon finishing it, I was just, and I still am actually, on a kind of high from reading it because it, it's so bracingly joyous, even as it recognizes the absolute terror of the situation we find ourselves in now. Well, you know, I, I have spent a lot of time in the last couple of years ruminating on the difference between hope and optimism. I'm not much of a not much of a fan of optimism. I, I've come to the conclusion that optimism is a form of fatalism and and that optimism is ultimately quite disempowering, right? Because it, it it is effectively the idea that things are gonna get better, better no matter what we do, which also kind of means that like we don't need to do anything and also what we do doesn't matter, right? Which, you know, those are the, that's the hidden flip side of things are gonna get better no matter what we do is, is what we do doesn't matter. And that's not a happy thought by any means. I think um, when we think about the climate emergency, it is very easy to get the sense that we are all like uh, trapped on a bus that is barreling towards a cliff edge and that the first class passengers up in the front have decided that there is no cliff. And whenever we say, hey, hey, swerve the wheel, 
they go like, are you crazy? Someone might break a leg. There's not a cliff. And even if there is, you know, worst case, we'll like go so fast that we jump over the cliff. And if that fails, well, we'll, we'll build some wings for the bus. And, uh, you know, the one thing we absolutely can't do is like stop the bus or swerve the bus. Like that would be really bad. And, and for me, that has this kind of nightmarish feeling of being, of being, you know, watching the, the protagonist of a horror movie go down the stairs into the spooky basement while you're sitting there going like, no, don't go down into the stairs and knowing that they're going to do it anyway. And it, it's really, it's really awful that feeling of being trapped in a kind of remorseless logic that brings you closer and closer to your own destruction and, and doing anything is very, very empowering. Like it kind of almost doesn't matter what it is. It's very, very empowering to just do something, to get the sense that you have some mastery over your own destiny. You know, I, I think that there's something about that that really resonates with the kind of theory and practice of writing fiction. Some 30 plus years ago when I was at Clarion, Nancy Kress told us that the way to figure out who the protagonist of your story was is to ask who changes the most and who has the most at stake, right? Like, so in other words, who's the person who's doing stuff? The person who's doing stuff is the protagonist of the story. And I think that the climate story doesn't have protagonists or at least not normie protagonists, not protagonists like us, because there's no place for us to do stuff about our own destiny. And so writing this story in which people are actually taking it at hand, in which there are what we used to call in the web 2.0 uh, days, um, architectures of participation that make space for everyone to do things to help affect the outcomes of these, you know, very pressing issues. Um, that was like very, very um, uh, joyous experience. And I'm really glad to hear that it carried over into the reading itself. It was a really interesting reading experience because we're so much with Brooks as we read read the book that we experience, you know, the kind of the gamut of emotions that you experience in real life and his reactions are analogous to, to ours. We really feel with him. And I think that that's uh, what I, one thing I want to ask you did that come out in the writing of the story or was that kind of baked into the character from the beginning? Well, he was definitely like that was that was his deal for sure when I when I first started writing him. And, you know, the story. So you should know that I wrote nine books during lockdown. And this is this is one of them. I, I deal with my um, with any sort of pain or discomfort by burying myself in work. I have chronic pain. And one of the reasons that I. Uh, I'm as productive as I am, even when there isn't a pandemic on, is that whenever I'm in a lot of pain, I just write, a, I just write, and then I don't notice the pain until afterwards. And, you know, as a strategy, this has its good points and its bad points, but it's, it's served me well. And it did mean that, you know, in the worst days of the acute phase of the pandemic, I was just uh, out in the backyard in a hammock, just writing with every hour that God sent. And when the dust settled, there were nine books. And this was one of them. This is the only one that I had going when the pandemic struck, though. So this is this is a book that was already maybe like 30% done when, when the pandemic struck. And um, it was, uh, at first, you know, it was just an exercise in in like visiting a hopeful place every day before the pandemic struck. And then 
after the pandemic struck, it became like a really critical activity for me to sit down with this book every day. You know, it became the hopeful place I visited amidst this very hopeless moment. You know, one of the things I liked is that right from the beginning, you subvert our vision of the future. Our normal vision of the future is that, you know, the past just, or the future just replaces the present. We are given a future and the past is somewhat erased. And, and I think that's not the way it actually happens. The past, the, pre, the future gets built on top of the past. And, and yeah. as... Yeah. Pardon? Bruce Sterling says the future composts the past. Exactly. <laughs> so, so um, in in the beginning, Brooks has moved back into his grandfather's house, and, and you know he's building his future on top of that past. And so, right from the very beginning, we get that theme, and eventually, this is brought brought to life in the most graphic visual way, actual way that could possibly happen. And so I'd like you to talk about, you know, creating this future, which is not too far in our future, you know, by um, incorporating so much of the present. Yeah, well, you know, I think some of this comes from um, some of the exercises that Charlie Strauss has done on his blog historically over the years, where he's done things like, well, what, what can we know about the future? And, and it's things like, well, we, we know how many 18-year-olds we can have in 17 years, what the upper limit of 18-year-olds is in 17 years. And, and the way that we know that is we can count the number of one-year-olds. And we won't have more 18-year-olds in 17 years than we have one-year-olds today. And there are a lot of different things where we can just go like, how many cars are on the road and what's their duty cycle? How many you know, houses have been built and how long until they fall over if they're not maintained. So you get a lot of, um, you know, radical presentism when you when you think about the future that that way. And, you know, a lot of the despair I think we feel over the climate emergency is the sense of all these lost opportunities where it would have been possible to save so much that we are now likely to lose, you know, whole cities and regions and so on. You know, one of the persistent subplots and in Lost Cause is the idea that there are whole whole coastal cities being moved inland as they're inundated. And at a certain point, you discover that Miami just doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a mangrove swamp and so on. And I think a lot of our despair is this sense of, of, of lost opportunity. But there comes a point where you just stop worrying about the lost opportunity and you just roll up your sleeves and start doing it you know that that old saw that the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the second best time is now and there just comes a point where you're like all right well this is the hand we've been dealt this is where the ball lies and i guess we better just go play it and you know i i think we all understand when we are confronted with any kind of horrific crisis you know when you um, get a terrible medical diagnosis or, you know, you lose your job or, or you know, you wreck the car. I, I think we all understand that there will come a time in which this is normal, right? It'll be something that's kind of recedes in the back, back mirror. Um, and we all would kind of like that moment to come faster, but it, it, it comes on its own schedule. And to write a book in which we are recognizably in this moment, 
you know, a moment descended from this moment. But the things that we are fearful of have arrived and have become normal. And now we've rolled up our sleeves and we're dealing with them. We've rushed forward and grabbed the wheel and swerved so that at least we're not barreling towards the cliff anymore. And yeah, there's a lot of people who like broke a leg when the bus rolled. But at least, you know, we know we're not going to go off the cliff and we can start doing some first aid here. You know, that that's one of the real joyous aspects uh, of the book. And also, when you were talking about the coastal cities, I live in a coastal city. I can walk to the beach from, from where I live. It's Monterey Bay. It's beautiful. And every morning I take the dogs down for a walk. And every morning I think, you know, my granddaughter is one year old right now. And by the time she's 18, she'll be saying, you know, old grandpa used to walk down there where there was a bay. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, well, you know, that's going to be okay. And then we had these terrible storms like a year ago, and it completely destroyed the beach I walked on. I mean, it just wiped out everything that was there, and you couldn't even walk on it for about a couple of months. But, you know, they slowly built it back, and it's kind of back now, even though it's like half of it's gone. And this kind of process of, you know, the the future becomes normalized. And that's what I really like about this book, is the future is, is normal. People are still around. Yeah, you know, I remember at the start of the, the Trump administration, there was this movement to not allow Trump to become normalized. Right. It's, it was a kind of moral duty, you know, don't let this become normal. And I always thought that it was kind of a doomed enterprise because, you know, you talk to people who survived like death camps and it became normal, right? Like you, it is not possible to remain in an excited, nervous state over long time scales. like all stimulus regresses to the mean. And so you know, it's it, this isn't to say that it will be good or that you'll like it or whatever. It's that you won't be. So I think what it means for something to become normal or rather, let me say that a struggle can become normal, right? That that, you know, that that allowing something to become normal is not the same as accepting it. It might be that the normal thing is that you recognize that the solid ground you used to have under your feet is now slipping out from under you and your new normal is spending every hour that God sends uh, uh, racing to stay in one place, you know, uh, helping other people who are slipping in the, in the, as, as the ground uh, emulsifies beneath them. And that, you know, that's not a, that's, that's not necessarily a good life, but it's a life. And it, you know, the, the sooner you recognize that that is your lot, the sooner you can start, actually doing the stuff that will help you restore a better life or build a better life for, for, for yourself or for the people who come after you. Um, we're, you know, there's just like no getting around the fact that we are headed for some really bad stuff right now. Uh, we, we, we blew through a bunch of deadlines. Um, you know, I, I think that like you sink enough therms into the ocean and, and bad stuff is going to happen to the polar caps. And like, we're not going to repeal the second law of thermodynamics. And those, there's just large amounts of, of polar ice that's just toast at this point. And, you know, if, if you think about good climate books recently, like uh, Ministry for the Future, Stan talks about how 
we might stabilize the ice that can be salvaged. But, you know, we need to mourn the ice that we are doomed to lose and move on and start thinking about how we stop more ice from being lost, not not be paralyzed with this grief, right? We, we just, we, we missed our chance. We blew it. We blew it. And maybe we'll have truth and reconciliation one day. A lot of the people who uh, caused us to blow it have have uh, known home addresses and we, we, we know what size guillotine they wear. Uh, and so maybe, maybe there'll be some kind of reckoning someday, but you know, it's, it's the, the, like just hanging around and, and, and playing woulda, shoulda, coulda is not gonna save anyone from the coming disaster. You know, also I detected this book is a real love letter to Burbank. Yeah. Your new, your new home. And there's so much great stuff in there, like Chili John's. <laughs> so, so talk about you know why why you moved, where you moved, and you know just creating a a love letter to to Burbank, California, which is not necessarily the the, the city that leaps to mind <laughs> as yeah. a recipient of love letters in literature. It gets a lot of stick, Burbank. You know, everyone knows the beautiful downtown Burbank ja joke uh, and not much else about it. You know, we moved here in 2015. We didn't move here out of love for the city. My, my wife got a job here, mm -hmm. and so we moved here. Um, and, uh, and, and it seemed like a nice place to move. It, you know, a little introduction here. It's a, uh, a, a mid-sized city on the outskirts of the Los Angeles uh, in the same way that... Um, Sarah Palin can see Russia from her front porch. I can see the the Hollywood uh, Burbank Junction from my front lawn. Uh, it's just just around the corner is the city limit. We're a city of about 100,000 people. We've got a, a, a larger bed uh, uh, daytime population than nighttime population. We're a place people come to to work. Um, and uh, it, we're home to the big three studios, Universal, Warner, and Disney. Um, we are uh, a, a historically a, a couple of different kinds of company town. Lockheed called Burbank its headquarters for many years. Um, the legacy of that is twofold. On the one hand, when we bought a house here, I got a letter from the city council saying, hey, by the way, Lockheed left a ton of unmarked fuel depots all over Burbank. If you discover that your house is just like one giant carcinogen, call us up because because we'll bring clean fill out. We'll excavate your uh your lawn and give you clean fill uh, using a trust fund that Lockheed left behind when they bugged out. Um, but on the other hand, like Burbank is just full of nerds because it's the place where not only did a lot of Lockheed engineers live here, but also this is historically where the, um, the skilled trades from the studios lived. So the talent lived over the hills in Hollywood and like the electricians and the plumbers and whatnot, they all lived here. And so we have things like the largest a uh, family-owned hardware store west of the Mississippi is two blocks from my front door. When we moved here, right up, I think, until the pandemic, we had a uh, a model uh, gas-powered plane store, not a not a not a uh, not a drone store, but a store that had been there since the '60s, selling or maybe even longer, selling gas-powered planes. That you run on to... a string. Hmm? That you run on a string. Yeah, like around mostly your head, to, I used to, to have one of those. To aerospace engineers 
whose hobby was to come home from designing airplanes and build model airplanes and fly them. <laughs> we have a little tiny regional airport that used to, that was Amelia Earhart's home airstrip. Uh, that was also the experimental strip for Lockheed. Uh, it's now like the best airport in California to fly in and out of. Um, it, it's never been brought up to code. So all the gates are really close together, which, you know, is bad news if there's ever an explosion, but it means you can walk the full length of the terminal in under 10 minutes. You know, my sofa to gate time is like 15. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it is a great town. And when lockdown hit and I found myself working on a novel set in Burbank and, you know, I, I tend to write novels set in the places that I live. When I lived in London, I wrote a novel set in London. I wrote a novel set in Toronto because that's where I grew up. I wrote three novels set in the Bay Area because I lived there for a while. And, um, you know, every novel's got to be set somewhere and a place that you can conjure up in your mind's eyes is as good a place as any to write it, especially if you're like me and you spend a lot of time on the road. You know, I've been a professional activist for, for three decades and I was the uh, European director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And I spent a lot of time uh you know on the road going around doing stuff for them and so it meant that i i often had to uh conjure up places in my mind's eye rather than go out and visit them and then lockdown hit and i couldn't leave burbank i was grounded um and it was quite amazing actually to be stuck in one place and writing a book about the place that i was stuck in that was it was it turned out to be really goddamn good uh to to be here doing this book right then and so you know we were doing the same thing as everyone else we were going walking for our physical health but mostly for our mental health because you know we were like everybody else stuck in a jean-paul sartre play where you know we were living out of each other's pockets and learning to hate each other and going out for walks was a great way to kind of remind each other that we actually really loved each other and it meant that i just saw a lot of the city at a walking pace that I had previously either seen out the window of a car or, you know, sometimes from my bicycle. And uh, boy, did I ever get a lot of material for this book through the act of just legging it around town. You know, this book, one of the things this book confronts is the fact that all of us know somebody or maybe are related to somebody who no longer believes essentially in objective reality, the the the, the mega hats. Yeah. And, and what are we going to do with these people when that reality that they live in is so divorced from, you know, what needs to be done that they're essentially, you know, useless and or dangerous or both. Uh, talk about that. I myself am related to people who are red hats, and they're very nice people, actually. <laughs> so Look, far, you, can't, you can't be involved in science fiction and not know some people like that, because science fiction's got a great big reactionary streak in it. And you know, um, one of the one of the interesting things about science fiction is historically it was one of those places where progressives and reactionaries could find some common ground. You know, thinking about like Gene Wolfe and and uh, and and Judy Merrill, or or even you know Chip Delaney hanging out with each other. And I love Gene as a person, but boy, his politics were terrible. And uh, and yet there he was, pal to many of the most progressive people you could hope to name. 
Um, and, and it was through this set of artistic fraternity wasn't true of everybody. Um, and, but, you know, even someone as odious a creep as John W. Campbell could be friends with, with, uh, people who were not disgusting, racist, uh, you know, eugenics crazed, reactionary, vicious, neo-fascist, which, you know, is, is who John W. Campbell was. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're, we've, we've reached a point where it's getting a lot harder to peacefully coexist with some of those people. I wonder how much of that, honestly, is a lack of perspective, because I think about the stakes in, you know, the Campbell era, they were not low stakes, right? It wasn't like, oh, well, we could we could keep Campbell in polite company uh, because, you know, the worst that would happen was that he would just make us feel a little uncomfortable. I mean, you know, Campbell is Campbell is writing and soliciting white nationalist material during the era in which, you know, activists for voter registration or or other, you know, really foundational elements of, of justice are, are, you know, being murdered and like turning up at, in, in ditches, you know, and in, in, in lonely farmers fields in the south. And and yet, we you know, we were able to somehow keep them around. Maybe that was a mistake. Right. I'm not going to rule that out. But um, we were we were at quite a moment back then compared to where we are now. And, and yet somehow there was some common ground. And the one thing that I think we've learned from, you know, the, the years since the, the Great Wars and the um, uh, Cold War and so on, is that people who are like objectively wrong and who lost just revolutions do not just dig a hole, climb inside and pull the dirt down on top of themselves. That's a, a line that occurs several times in the book, because I think that it tells you what we what we kind of expect the losers of these revolutions are going to do. You know, like it's it's pretty gross that Henry Kissinger is still welcome in polite company. But like if he were banished from polite society, he would still be Henry Kissinger and he'd still be hanging around. He wouldn't just disappear. And so right now we're, 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 I think progressives are on the losing side of a lot of these culture war issues. Like we're on the back foot. Um, and we spent a lot of time thinking about these as, as defensive actions, uh, to, to reference my, my last novel, you know, we are playing the, the red team where the, where the, or, or rather we think of them as offensive actions. Um, you know, we're, we're on the outs attacking the defenders of the status quo where the red team attacking the blue team who are the defenders who are the you know the the reactionaries who are taking books out of our libraries and rolling back voting rights and you know packing the supreme court and capturing our politics but you know i think that we we don't really spend much time wondering what it would be like to be on the other side of that equation right what are we going to do when we win uh are we going to be like how are we going to defend that posture? You know, do are we going to be any better at defending that posture than our adversaries are today? I think it's a it's an interesting and and uh, exciting and and thought provoking emotional exercise to pursue to wonder what it will be like after we win, not just in a kind of like how blissful it will be, but like what will our adversaries be doing after that? What what will our defensive posture be? You referenced that you spent decades as an activist and still are. So yeah. talk about, you know, translating that into, you know, more than one character, a variety of characters in the future where activism is 
in a sense, the norm, the, the, the uh, you know, the page has been flipped. Yeah. Well, look, I, I, I mean, that's the, that's the thing that we're, um, you know, that we're dealing with now is the, is the fights over what our tactics should be. Um, and, and, you know, there are all kinds of new digital tactics that emerge, uh, with every new generation. Um, and, uh, sometimes those tactics clash, you know, I think about, um, the kids in the UK and, and some grownups who are like gluing themselves to uh, train tracks or throwing soup on, on paintings and so on. Some of that stuff feels to me like bad tactics, but on the other hand, I'm, you know, can't claim to be a font of, of better ideas about what to do. And so, you know, I, 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 um, I have been around like not just struggles, activist struggles in the sense of, fighting over what we should, uh, fighting for something better, but also activist struggles as in struggles among activists, fighting over what we should do. And, uh, and you know, this is a book about a kind of networked activism that takes all the stuff that happened around the net roots and, uh, and then the Obama campaign and then the stuff that the MAGA people invented because they um, innovated some pretty amazing tactics. It, it should be noted, right? Like, that it's a um, a poor tactician who discards a tactic just because your adversary thought it up. Uh, that that feels like an unnecessary own goal to abandon something just because it was effective against you. Um, and uh, and and thinking about how those come into conflict. I mean, a lot of my books have been about what activist tactics look like when the internet comes along. I started writing those books before activists were seriously using the internet. And some of the tactics that I describe in my books become tactics for activists. I, I've heard from many activists who said, well, we, we did this because we read about it in your book and it worked. Um, but uh, we're now at the point where there's a lot of activism emerging that has nothing to do with my books and that I'm, you know, pulling on threads of some of which makes me feel uncomfortable um, and, and trying to think about what that clash of tactics would look like. You know, one of the one of the things that I started to change about how I wrote conflict when I with my 2017 novel Walk Away was to imagine that the most important conflicts are not conflicts among enemies, but conflicts among friends. That you know, the only thing worse than losing uh, an argument at Thanksgiving dinner is winning an argument at Thanksgiving dinner and becoming permanently estranged from someone you love. And so, you know, a lot of the the struggle in this book is a struggle among people who foundationally agree with each other, but can't agree on what to do. That that's one of the really beautiful things too, is to see friends in this book, they talk to each other and they listen to one another and they ask one another questions and they listen to those answers. And that makes the book I think that's one of the things that gives the book this sense of joy and optimism, even in circumstances that are often fairly dire. Well, and that's a Stan Robinson riff, too. I mean, all, all hail Kim Stanley Robinson here. Um, you know, people like there. If, if Well, let me say this. If you didn't like the the meetings in, in the Mars novels, <laughs> this book may not be for you, uh, which is fine. Um, I'm quite interested. I, I think uh, I think a well-written meeting is is a is a um, a joyous dramatic scene. 
Uh, and you know, this kind of ties into something else that um, I've realized about about writing craft. Like even saying the word feels somewhat. Uh, um, well, I don't know. Uh, it feels a little feels a little uh, uh, hoity-toity. But one of the things I, I realized about writing craft pretty pretty recently, relatively recently, given how long I've been at this, is that when we say we there are some rules for writing, like uh, you know, show don't tell. What what we're actually reflecting is the fact that it's hard to do certain things well. Like exposition is hard to do well. Uh, and so it, it's also very hard to know why a story doesn't work. I think, you know, anyone who's worked as a critic knows this, um, that like putting your finger on what it is about a story that isn't gelling for you is really hard. Certainly anyone who's been in a critiquing circle or, or been a writing teacher knows that it's easy to say this book doesn't work for me or this story doesn't work for me. It's much harder to pin down what it is about that story that doesn't work. And um, I think that what we're tempted to do because of those two facts that, you know, it's hard to do certain things well, and it's hard to know why certain things don't work is, is whenever we're confronted with a piece of fiction that's not quite gelling, we tend to sort of run a checklist like which extremely hard things is this writer attempting to do like a lot of exposition, say, or uh, scenes where the dramatic tension arises out of uh, disagreements in a meeting. Um, and we say, well, that's probably it. That's probably the thing that that is just not working here. Um, and, you know, if we're in a critiquing circle, we say, try doing less of this, right? Try making um, try making this, this uh, you know, like, like take out the exposition, replace it with drama. But, um, you know, th that might be like a sound troubleshooting tactic, but it's a mistake to uh, believe that there are like iron laws of fiction that say that if there is a lot of exposition or meetings or, you know, long discussions about about praxis among activists, that it can't be interesting. Um, you know, there some of the my favorite scenes in fiction of all time are purely expository, right? Like I, if, if Neil Stevenson wanted to write a book length version of the 2000 word treaties in Cryptonomicon on the proper way of eating Captain Crunch cereal, I would buy that book and I'd probably read it often enough that I'd, I'd partially memorize it. You know, one of the things I really liked about this book was the sense of, of how you wreak drama out of situations that seem not dramatic. You, the drama in the meetings is incredible and you set us up for a plot that's going to go in that direction and then you surprise us and it's really that is just as much fun um as the surprise that the drama it, it the dramatic meetings are really fantastic so talk about this was this uh something that you planned or, or did this come just grow out of the the plotting and writing of the novel well, look, I, 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 you know, I, I thought about a lot of different ways to to make this book interesting. So some of the eyeball kicks in this book are technological, right? There's a lot of stuff, you know. Joe Joe Walton talks about incluing, where you you brush stroke in little bits and pieces about the world you've built, and I, I, I think that like if you're paying close attention to this book, there will come a point where you go, oh wait, this is like a world of absolute abundance where everyone has all of their material mats and, and material needs met and more 
where like things are like really um, nice and comfortable. And yet we're not spending every day with the kind of existential dread that the way that we live is going to cook the planet and kill us all. And that there's like a way to kind of balance out those two extremely important priorities. So some of the excitement is meant to come from those moments, right? Where you just go, oh, wait, I, wow, I see how this is going. I see what's going on here. I had never imagined that we could live uh, in a way that was both very comfortable and even luxurious. And also that wouldn't, um, you know, leave me haunted with the feeling that I was about to, you know, that I was uh, sowing the seeds of my own death and my own downfall here. Um, and and uh, there's also a bunch of like whiz bang, you know, hand-to-hand combat scenes. There's a lot of like, you know, martial scenes where there's like, there's a siege, there's like gunfights, there's a lot of you know, strategy and tactics stuff going on that that is exciting in the way that a traditional adventure novel is exciting. And then there's a bunch of high tension stuff about interpersonal relations and like a will they, won't they stuff about people that you love, I hope, who are facing, you know, really hard, irre- potentially irreconcilable personal differences that they're going to have to resolve. Uh, and if they resolve them badly, then these people you care about are going to be permanently unhappy. And, and I kind of feel like those three different species of drama are, are each exciting in their own way. And that moreover, you can countersink them so you can move from one to the next so that they are, uh, so that you're never getting inured to something. You're never having your stimulus regress to the mean, because you can always flip from one kind of drama to another. And thank you for mentioning Fully automated luxury communism. Yeah. <laughs> I lo- love to read that. And I thought that uh, the the scenes with the uh, the planning commissions and the, uh, especially the, the, uh, the Zoom comedians, uh, you have a very interesting sense of what's funny. And this book is content consistently enjoyable because you have a, a very nice sense of humor that it's not exactly jokes but it makes you smile yeah yeah well okay so the 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 stuff that happens in the um in the uh the stuff that happens in the um the town meeting is actually stuff that happened here uh in in our town meetings uh i i go to town meetings sometimes uh for things on um uh you know for for things like rent control uh uh ordinances and so on uh i get i i get turned out because i'm on the um democratic socialist mailing list so i get i get invited out sometimes and i go and i speak in these things and local town meetings are a blast they are where politics you know really rubber meets the road yeah, I I can I can concur. Having attended uh, town meetings in Watsonville, <laughs> and I think one of the things too that this book captures well is what I would guess I would call the new American small town, in that the the small town is unfolds not only over a, necessarily a small area, but by people within a set of people who have 
you know, congenial interests. And I think that that's an important way that things are getting done and moved now. Yeah, I mean, look, but thinking of, back to learning from your adversary's tactics, if there's one thing Moms for Liberty has taught us, it's that there's just not a lot of people who want to go do these thankless uh, administrative jobs, and yet they hold an awful lot of power. You know, same with being a, a you know returning officer for your local polling place and all of those other things that you know the the right actually moved in and started capturing. Um, and you know, I am the kind of uh, like tube feeding activist weirdo for whom this stuff has been on my radar for a long time. And and you know, I I, I watch and vote on all of those offices, and I sometimes tune into the water board meeting and so on. But there, there's that stuff is so poorly regarded that those institutions, which are not like I don't think they're intrinsically weak, but they're weak when they're unregarded and it makes them soft targets. And because there's so much potential power in subverting or suborning those institutions, they've become the locus of a lot of really important fights. Um, and, you know, the progressives could stand to, to, to learn a thing or two from people who are uh, on the other side and and packing those offices and packing those meetings. Honestly, like that power is ours to take. You know, that goes back to what you were saying about learning from your adversaries uh, moves that are that work. I mean, yeah, it, it's important. And, you know, as well, too, the technology in this is really interesting, especially, you know, the the whole idea of the the blue helmets and, and the response uh to emergencies is is very interesting as well the the whole living in a fire country aspect i remember a couple of years ago during the the california fires it was tough to go outside yeah well, I, I mean i wrote part of this book during the fires uh, and I was, you know, working in my hammock and, and then realizing I had to go inside because my eyes hurt too much from from sitting in the smoke. And then, you know, my clothes would stink from having sat out in the hammock writing. So another thing I kind of got from, well, I didn't quite get it from Stan Robinson, but I was quite pleased to discover we both do it. He, t he told me that he's now doing all of his writing outside. He, he sets up a, a tarp with a folding chair underneath it. The, the tarp is so that... Um, he has some shade for his laptop screen and can see his screen and rain or shine. He sits in his backyard and writes that's, that's his off his home office now. And I more or less arrived at the same strategy for, for my own work here. You know, um, humans use technology, not only in terms of building machines, but also the technology of human, um, organizations. And this is something you pay a great deal of attention to and do very well. You have create new human means of organizing humans and have, I think, throughout your entire career. So talk about doing that in this particular novel. Well, you know, thinking of, of learning from my adversary. So there's a, an economist, Ronald Coase, who I think... Um, we disagree about a lot of, well, he's dead, but I think we would have disagreed about a lot of things. But the one thing that we really agree on, and that was quite revelatory when I read his paper, The Theory of the Firm, is that the reason we form groups is to become superhuman, right? That that like a group does 
more than one person can do. It is literally superhuman. And the only way to get superhuman is to coordinate activity among lots of people. And it means that, you know, in some important way, like the most kind of pernicious and important problem that we solve as a species is how to cooperate, right? Because like, there's just only so much we can do as, as individuals. Um, and, you know, a lot of the most reactionary fiction that you'll find and and indeed reactionary ideology you can find boils down to everybody shut up and do what i say which you know is a system that works well but fails badly if you're a wise dictator that's great but if you are fallible or uh uh not benign then this is this is very very bad and we we all know how that can turn out um and so yeah like one of the great things that the internet does is makes it cheaper to coordinate our activity right it lets us coordinate larger groups with less infrastructure fewer meetings and so on you know one of the things that uh spurred me to write um walk away was a kind of writing prompt that was like what would it be like if we built a space program or a skyscraper the way we make operating systems and encyclopedias today uh and that was the that was the thought experiment from which walk away really proceeded um and, you know, I, I continue to be obsessed with all the ways that the Internet uh, makes it possible for larger and larger groups of people to coordinate with less and less overheads, you know, and, and, and um, how much ad hoc action that permits. And, you know, it's amazing to see it on the micro scale. I think about being a kid and like being downtown on a Friday night and wanting to see if any of my friends wanted to catch a movie. And so getting a bunch of quarters and going to a payphone and calling their moms and saying, Hey, you know, Zach calls in, tell him Corey called, ask him if he wants to see a movie, tell him to call my mom and leave a message or leave a message on the machine. And I'll call and pick up the messages from the machine and just having, you know, playing this hit or miss game. And now it's like, it's so easy that it, it barely bears uh, discussion, right? You just, it's just really just point and click now to get to get all of your friends on the same page and in the same movie theater you know um one of the things that i found really interesting about this book w was the the references to uh you know the the many versions of hero's journey that you know the harry potter books and etc etc and this book i think really inverts that whole story and fold it in a sense in on itself we, we don't have a young man who's taken out of his place we have a young man who's come back home right and, and by staying home he, he he's you know eventually able to build a better home talk about you know the fascism implied in such um journeys and, and you know your understanding or your revision of what's called the human the hero's journey well it should be said first that that the hero's journey isn't a thing right like john w campbell or, or not john w campbell uh joseph campbell claimed that a, a careful study of the mythologies of all the cultures of the world revealed this this common narrative running through it and anthropologists then and now are like no, that's not true, right? That's that's just a thing you made up, and and so you know the hero's journey as it stands in in so many uh, fantasy and science fiction novels where there's the one and they go on a quest and they save the world, you know it it, it is this idea that like um, 
some of us are born to lead as opposed to all of us having a place, all of us having greatness within us, um, you know, historic contingency being as important as personal virtue, all these things that that are, you know, obviously true with a moment's thought. You know, I, I, uh, <clears throat> I have a friend who's a, a sex advice columnist, Dan Savage, who's got a great podcast called Savage Love. And, and he does these, um, this riff where he will say, you are never going to find the one. It would be pretty amazing if the one were alive at the same time as you, given all the years in which people have lived and in which the one could have been born. You know, it's why, why not the one having been born, you know, 20,000 years ago and having lived and died in a cave, you know, and, and now you're never going to meet the one. And he said, you'll never meet the one, but you, you'll meet a lot of 0.6s that with some work, you can round up to one. And I think that the, like a much more interesting hero's journey or, you know, story of, of personal growth than discovering that you were always the one and then doing some train, you know, having a training montage and then rising to fill the glory that was your destiny to begin with is you and all the people around you trying like hell to round 0.6 up to one. And, you know, this is a book full of people who are much more competent than the protagonist. Um, and, you know, to, to the extent that the protagonist is, is on a journey of discovery and development, it's not to outstrip them all and become the hero that they all want him to be. It's to be their comrade and to fight alongside of them in these, you know, very important fights that they are engaged with. You know, too, it's important to, in this book, I do a great job of creating the urgency and the terror, really, of the climate crisis and examining the human reaction to it, which is, by default, insufficient. Sure. Well, I, m more to the point, I think any sufficient, um, any sufficient version of this uh, would be uh, paralyzing, right? Like you, you can't really confront the, um, you can't really confront the magnitude of it without being just, just lost to fear, you know? And so what we get are these imperfect reflections, right? It's either like the, the numbed, uh, you know, um, euphemistic way that we deal with it, where we just kind of, we put it a long way away for, we hold it at arm's length and, and we, try not to think too hard about it emotionally. We just try to, to, to reason our way around it. Or you get this just kind of gibbering kind of Lovecraftian response where it's, it, it's just so scary that we can't even imagine it. The new book by Cory Doctorow is The Lost Cause. Thank you for joining me, Cory. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. What a, what a treat to talk to you again, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.